iced tea. Get to the point. Oh, the rip compels me. Old fashioned, I'm calling Bon Jovi every metal, you know. Bloody hell, what's, they were adding everybody in under the category of every metal. Black Sabbath wasn't a band that you got a guy from Newcastle, a guy from London, and a guy from Birmingham who was constructed. We were four local guys that went, I went to the same school as Tony, and we conquered the fucking world. Wait till the end, wait until it's finished, boy, you'll love it. It wasn't my job to try to save this band, it seemed more like it was their job to try to destroy it. Stand up something more too, did you? Ozzy fucking Osborne. Sabbath, please, Sabbath. Spirito Sancto Sabography Bloody Podcast. You see, that's Latin there for welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast, the sabography for the masses. Here we are, sailing the winds of Valhalla. My God, how far we've come on this journey here into the void. If you aren't familiar with this LP here, well, neither was I. So let's wise up, bring a little context to this buried but wonderful offering. Hopefully you enjoy it as much as I did. And if you don't like it, that's cool too. We're covering 1990s tier. Thanks again to everyone who's been tuning into the show here. Tons of hot takes after the last couple of ones. People really loving, really hating on Headless Cross. I love hearing all the views on that one. For, for me, it wasn't really what I was looking for from the Sabs, but I found some parts to it that I liked. And I'm excited to press on here into the 90s, though, because this is a decade that I actually experienced firsthand, you know? So I have much more context to the scenes and the trends of the time, at least from a Canadian perspective, for what that's worth. But the whole popular music scene in the 90s was shifting towards more alternative and extreme forms of music, especially in the hard rock scene, right? I mean, all that underground black metal and death metal from the late 80s, that was all out in the open now and accessible because it was all about CDs and cassettes cassettes are the big one like tons of bootlegging and people sharing their collections and it was also cheaper to produce and distribute music now that they weren't cutting wax for everything and there was a demand for more extreme styles of music like people were kind of burnt out on the hair metal and the in-your-face glam that was all the rage in the late 80s so where does that put the sabs right the godfathers of metal i mean how is old tony boy going to stack up against the likes of Kurt Cobain and Nine Inch Nails and Pantera, your fucking tools. After closing out the 80s, back in the USSR, that suite of several huge gigs in Russia in 89, the Europeans were still embracing this new Sabbath in a big way. A lot of reviews and reports out there kind of gloss over these cycles. They concentrate on the U.S. decline in sales, and they forget that there were other markets out there where Sabbath was still flourishing, especially for this epic-leaning kind of AOR-infused rock that we've been getting from the guys post-Born Again, really. Most of the Sabs lit that I have just goes straight to the Dio and Aussie reunions when talking about Sabbath history. Well, not today. Not in this Sabography, folks. So let's get to the album today. It all starts back in the studio this time around. Much like Headless Cross, there wasn't any real fuckery in the lineup these guys were ready to feed off that Euro-Russian tour energy and create some distinctively epic, doomy metal. And after breaking off for the holidays for a little bit, the lads were resuming business as usual by February of 1990. Back in Wood Cray Farmhouse Studio, they marched. Tony Iommi, Cozy Powell, Tony Martin, Neil Murray on bass, who had just joined on for the Headless Cross tour, and of course Jeff Nichols. So no lineup changes between offerings here. 
And although it was a quick jog into the studio, it certainly wasn't rushed. In fact, Iomi and Cozy specifically took the time to evaluate what worked and what didn't work on their last LP. And they at least kind of nudged their singer into a new lane heading into Tear. Apparently, I'm not the only one who felt that your man Tony Martin was a little too on the nose with the devil shit there on Headless. <laughs> Here's a quote here from Tony Iommi to kick off the creative process of Tear. On Headless Cross, Tony Martin had just come into the band and he assumed, oh, Black Sabbath, it's all about the devil. So his lyrics were full of the devil and Satan. It was too much in your face, so we told him to be a bit more subtle about it. So for Tear, he did all these lyrics about Nordic gods and whatnot. It took me a while to get my head around that. So it seems that Martin was cool with the feedback too, either way. Immediately, he rised to the challenge from my own and he started to bring some new flavors into the lyrics. And here's a brief quote here that I found from Martin when asked specifically about his lyric inspirations and how he goes about crafting his parts. This is just kind of a nice little tidbit. To be honest, the more you concern yourself with it, the more you go nuts over it. Lyrically, I wanted to pull some historic stuff together with power words, words that are strong when you sing them. Also words that people don't use much anymore. I know some people play albums backwards to see if there's messages and stuff, but there's nothing like that on the stuff that I've written. <laughs> so he's pretty blunt in his content. As I've said before, and it remains true, Martin is fucking pure class. There's no ego whatsoever with him. So whatever's best for Sabbath, he's cool to dial back the Satan this round and just keep on. And the whole Viking thread that the cat brings in, it's actually perfect for Iomi and Cozy's sound. Although Iomi said that he needed some time to get his head around it there, but the epicness naturally associated with Viking lore and the kind of rhythmic sort of war drumming vibes that you get from it, it's a great backdrop for Iomi and Pal to really fucking amp up the scale of their parts, which they are, of course, more than capable of doing. So on this album, they kind of bring it back to some of that slow, pounding, epic scale stuff that we got on, like, Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules kind of Dio shit. Although Tear is not a full-on concept album, per se, it's very focused in its delivery. And for me, that's another great step forward in their progression. Like, it's a solid build-off of Headless Cross. Instead of just abandoning and going another direction, there's still kind of some of those AOR moments in there. But they bring in so much of their classic vibes as well and build some dynamics around it. It really works. Actually, I have one more quote here from Tony's book. Unfortunately, this quote here kind of really shows the worst part of Tier 2, which is that ultimately it's a fucking forgotten album by the masses. Lumped into that whole that's-not-real-Sabbath album bullshit and Iomi himself is kind of part to blame for dismissing it in recent years, but it's also funny how he draws comparisons in the works here. He kind of calls himself out. He says, you could compare Tear to Headless Cross like you could compare Mob Rules to Heaven and Hell. Tear has a heavier feel than Headless Cross. There's the Aussie thing, and there's the Ronnie thing, and then there's this. It's like these albums belong to a lost era. I'm even struggling to remember stuff from that time because in a way, it was wiped from my mind. <laughs> that little quote there is interesting to me. I mean, it's not just Iomi. This stuff is kind of completely buried by critics and magazine articles, making it hard for the casual fan like myself to get a rounded, unbiased view of its production. Even in the reports and concert reviews that I read, it's just slews of fucking jaded reviewers trying to take the piss out of Sabbath's legacy saying that Tony is taking it too far and he should give up kind of thing. Like every article starts with a slag of them being old or irrelevant. 
and they spend half of the fucking article just yammering on about that, and it doesn't even get to how this great album was created and how great this album is. <laughs> but another part of them kind of lumping these together and it not being the talk of the town is perhaps because they had kind of hit a stride too. Things were becoming more consistent again from Eternal Idol forward really onto this album. There's kind of a more natural progression. I mean, there's certainly different enough offerings and it's kind of unfair to lump them all together, I think, because like for me, it would go Idol's top, then this, and then Headless Cross kind of way down below that. But still, it's a solid suite of offerings when you look at them all together. Not a fucking shock to the system like it was from like Sabotage to Tech X or Never Say Die to Heaven and Hell even. Or even fucking Born Again to Seven Star for me. It, this one is more of a build off of the next one, not kind of starting a whole new thing. And I like that. I mean, at this point, it's kind of needed to really kind of sink into what they're serving up here. And this album really solidifies that there is a Tony Martin era. So let's get back to Woodcray Studios here. 1990, as mentioned, the whole band was involved from the start, including newcomer Neil Murray. There's a little blurb here in Mick Wall's book, Symptom of the Universe, where he kind of gets Neil Murray to kind of explain the writing vibes during Tear, which sounds pretty much verbatim to some of the accounts during Headless Cross. So they had obviously kind of found a process to work for them with Cozy and Martin. During the 1988 and 90 period of the band, says Neil Murray, it was very much a co-partnership between Tony Iommi and Cozy as leaders of the band. Cozy would go to Tony's house and they would sift through a huge number of riffs that Tony had on tape. Jeff Nichols would also come up with some song ideas. He was very much Tony's shadow, hanging out with him all the time, especially on tour, and generally being his loyal sidekick. So there you go. Jeff is still tethered at this point. <laughs> and my takeaway from that little quote there is the fact that Murray was around to see this kind of interaction means that he was very much involved and they were kind of doing this old school, you know, like a band. I mean, they still had the clear leaders there and Iommi and Powell, but if you listen to Murray's bass parts on this album compared to the Coddle tracks or even Bob Daisley's work on Idol, these ones are just fucking right there, present in the songs, you know, moving with Cozy's drums and it's amazing how locked in those two are both live and in the studio they are fucking one of the best rhythm sections since geezer and nibby really all right so let's pull up some liner notes here recorded and mixed february to june of 1990 in woodcray studios so four months really including mixing and essentially writing from scratch there i mean i would assume at the front end of that as they were on the road right up until december like late December of the previous year. I mean, there's always those duffel bags full of riffs <laughs> that Iomi has at his gaff, but it's insane how solid this album is if it came together that quickly. You know, these cats are fucking old school pros. It's produced by Iomi and Powell, engineer Sean Lynch, mixer Leaf Masses, generals gathered in the masses, <laughs> okay, mastered by Tony Cousins at the townhouse. And the fucking mix and mastering on this album, they did a fucking solid job, I must add. This is the best sounding album since Mob Rules, to my dog shit ears anyway. And I'm actually going off a German vinyl pressing that I have. I mean, the bass fucking sounds deadly. So let's push the needle in on this one. Look at the track list here. Okay, so the album kind of opens up with a definite throwback to some Dio kind of era Sabbath. Children of the Sea kind of vibes. Tony's part is almost fucking 
verbatim to it, right? So much so that there's a couple of threads that I've stumbled across that kind of call it a ripoff, which it's not, because it does descend much differently. But it's very similar. I mean, regardless of that, who fucking cares? I mean, it sounds like one of the greatest Sabbath songs of all time. Oh no. <laughs> I love the opening track, Anno Mande, The Vision. I guess it isn't your typical LP starter either, with the slow kind of ballad sounding part. You know, typical Sabs, they like to hit you with a galloper in the opening slow. At least that's what they kind of established in the Dio era and moving through Gillen and even fucking Seven Star. But, I, but on point, I guess, coming from Headless Cross, because that one started with the Gates of Hell thing. So in that sense, they do kind of open with a mood setter again. This might be the new norm heading forward, right? But the song gets heavy as fuck quite quickly, too. And Tony Martin's vocals, right off the bat, like, leaps and bounds above Headless, to my ears at least. Like, I know I came off as a little spent on the catcher and Headless Cross, but his vocals really settle in here. He sounds much more comfortable on tier. Like, the technique is still there, but there's more of an immediacy to it. Doesn't sound like he tracked it a hundred times, although there is some overlapping vocals that you can definitely tell that he's just singing in bursts, which I never like hearing that. But with Anomande, the way it opens is amazing. There's this cool kind of chanting part, which I think is Martin double-tracking his voice over. It might be Nichols in there, too. Does anyone know? Like, it's that high kind of choir-like stuff. It's drawing at first, actually, when you put on the album, but pretty cool once it settles in. The chant part goes, Spirito Sanctos Anno Anno Monday. So Anno Monday, translated, that means year of the world, and Spirito Sanctos means Holy Spirit. So I, at first, kind of read it as kind of like a rapture kind of deal, right? Or the creation of Earth or something. Well, here's a quote from the creator himself to clarify that for us. Tony Martin writes, In the year of the world, people are trying to save the planet. Or they say they're trying to save the planet. But really, it's just talk. Everything carries on the same until the world destructs. Almost every line is a question, to which there is no answer. But like a questionnaire, everyone's answer will be different. So there you go, straight from the cat's mouth there. It's a banger of a song once it gets going, too. Has a kind of Zero the Hero, kind of relentless driving riff from Iomi. Fantastic track to open the record. Then from there, they get into one of the proper galloping tracks like they usually do, a faster tempo one for the next one. It's a song called The Lawmaker. I, of course, don't really dig this one as much because it's kind of in that classic priesty, maiden-esque metal vibe. And you've probably gathered if you've listened to the show that I'm not really into that stuff. It's just not my thing. So Lawmaker is one that the skippers for me personally. It's just my fucking taste, dude. Like, don't get butt hurt about it, Treaders. And you know what? It's an all right track, too. I mean, in that Neon Knights turn up, turn to stone, Sabbath style. It's just not very unique, that's all. And if you were one of those people who felt like Anomande is too close to Children of the Sea for comfort, don't listen to this one next to Turn to Stone from Seven Star. Yeah, next up in the track list here, this one absolutely blows me away. The, one of the best crafted songs in all of the Martin stuff so far. I mean, it's not my favorite from the album, but. This one just stopped me dead in my tracks, composition-wise, I will say. A tremendous song. Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. This one, this is how you build into a melodic AOR vibe and keep a dumbass doom cat like myself on board. Heavy fucking riffs in here. Honestly, I haven't even dove into lyrics on this one. I assume it's some tired fucking Old Testament shit by the title. But musically and part-wise, this one's amazing. I mean, fuck, he could be singing about fucking barn owls again, and I'd still be in. <laughs> it 
Is it questioning faith or preaching it? I have no idea. Where will you turn to when it all goes wrong? Jerusalem. Is it a question or is Jerusalem the answer? I don't know. I don't really care. The song is fucking killer. And it has this kick-ass kind of rhythmic riff to open. And a slick transition to a more kind of polished AOR vibe verse. Not overly in your face, but still playing in that arena with the high gang vocals. There's all kinds of tasty licks in here too going on in the background. Super engaging composition to listen to, especially on headphones. Iomi has this sinister little kind of pinchy riff that he overdubs on the chorus. I don't know how else to explain it. It's like a little wall kind of accent layer there. Just fucking awesome. And Neil Murray, goddamn, he is holding it down with Cozy on the main riff. On the solo, we get just those two and Jeff while Iomi kills it. It's fucking, Jerusalem's great. Maybe part of it is that I'm getting used to this Martin stuff sonically, but even though it's similar in feel to some of the 80s stuff like Call the Wild or Killing the Spirit World, tracks that I didn't care for much from Headless Cross, there's just something that's working better here. So this song really impresses me. To me, it sounds like the cat has finally fucking found his power zone, sunk his fucking claws in. And you know what? Hold on to your butts because they bring back the old school doom here too. And the next track, actually, The Sabbath Stones. A proper return to the old school, but in a fresh new way. It's not a 13 situation here. They do the old school justice without kind of pandering to the old songs verbatim, you know? It's a powerful number. Highly recommend this one to any Sabbath fan, even if you've officially kind of checked out after Dio. At least come back for the Sabbath Stones, brother, because this is classic Sabbath. Martin explains in a short quote here in a Q&A that's actually from TonyMartin.net from 2002. I had to use the fucking Wayback Machine to dig this one out for you. Navigate some serious Y2K web design. (laughs) So Martin was asked on his fancy new website that he designed in 2002, what are the Sabbath stones? To which he replied, it's about God. Therefore, the keeper of the Sabbath stones is God. The Sabbath stones are the Ten Commandments. There you go, I was right. It's fucking Bible shit. Old Testament style. Let's check out the lyrics here for thy Sabbath stones. <laughs> because there's some hidden stuff in here, I'm sure. At least I catch some kind of criticism of faith in there. And thus, creating a truly on-point Sabbath number. You tell me, though. So, fire and water, wind and rain, wings that carry hell in every vein. <laughs> okay, so to start, he's back to wings and shit. <laughs> Classic Martin. World possessions, endless tears, truth and knowledge stolen from their years. World turns slowly, sun don't shine, silence stills the air and kills the chime. That's cool. Receiver of light, the kingdom of God will guide you and keep you from your restless heart. This this is like the coolest part of the song too. The cat's delivery on it is fucking insane. Deceiver of night, the stranger that laughs within you, the reason for your restless heart is the keeper of the Sabbath stones. So, there you go. The reason for your restless heart is God. Deceiver of night, the stranger that laughs within you. Questioning faith? Come on, guys. This is fucking miles ahead of Headless Cross with some coded cool shit in there to dissect. Classic Sabbath. Even in the song structure and the riffage, this song oozes 70 sabs to me. They speed up at the end for the outro as well, remnants of your war pigs and fairies endings, but still firmly in this new epic Sabbath flavor. I fucking love it. Sabbath stones, you know what? The 
power of the riff compels me. Power of the riff compels me. And it should you too, if you want to get to heaven. <laughs> Murray again here, just bringing it on the bass too. Fantastic lead bass parts in here. Super melodic, but not showy on those clean parts, you know? Like this might be the coolest non-geezer Sabbath bass line of any song. Like, I mean, look so far. Eternal Idol would be the only one that would really give it a run for its money. This is a fucking juggernaut, an instant classic. Then we get into the great kind of conceptual part of the record, the B-side. The Viking Trilogy, as it's known, which is really one song, so I'll just talk about it all together. The Battle of Tyr, Odin's Court, and Valhalla. So some brief mythology context here to put this through-line story that feeds into the cover art and everything. Actually, I'll mention the cover art briefly here. It's not my favorite cover, but there are tons of cool little illustrations and there's that ominous kind of landscape photo. The original Germanic god of war and the patron god of justice, the precursor of Odin. At the time of the Vikings, Tyr had to make way for Odin, who became the god of war himself. Tyr was by then regarded as Odin's son. He was the boldest of gods who inspired courage and heroism in the battlefield. Tyr is represented by a man with one hand because his right hand was bitten off by a gigantic wolf. <laughs> okay, so badass, right? So with those visuals in mind, act one of this trilogy is all Jeff Nichols. And epic is all hell too. Like this could legit hold up in a Lord of the Rings movie as a score or some shit, or a fucking video game or something. We haven't really heard this kind of style from Jeff before. He's usually more kind of atmospheric and low down, and 80s really. This sounds more like a battle score, you know? So it makes sense too, because <laughs> the song is called The Battle of Tear. As cool as it is, it does kind of sound a little out of place to me. And it's really the second act when Martin starts telling the story in Odin's court. That's when it kind of becomes more class. Definitely a bustle in your hedgerow. <laughs> And it builds and it builds and then it fucking explodes into act three. Valhalla. Riff and cozy slamming in. Completes this fucking Sabbath epic. Valhalla also has like my favorite tone shift on the album. And really any song since the chorus on Junior's Eyes, which is my favorite lift of all time. But on that part where it says, so raise your hands and they kind of switch meter and the key changes on a dime. It's so fucking huge. It's about two minutes into Valhalla if you want to check it out. But you'll feel it anyway. Like Murray and Cozy are fucking flawless on the shift. It's amazing. And the three-part epic is then followed by two more tracks, which, well, the poor bastards having to follow that trilogy there. Where can you go from there, really? We're into the 90s, so the LPs were kind of a thing of the past. And even though I'm lucky enough to have this on vinyl, it's not particularly sequenced right, in my opinion. They probably didn't really care. And I think... Part of the reason that that one would be in three parts would be so people could skip because you might as well just make it one song, right? Anyway, so in the eighth spot, we get the power ballad. Feels good to me. <laughs> and oh boy, was this one ever made as a radio single. It's just fucking blatant. I mean, even when asked why such a radio-friendly ballad was included on an otherwise kind of conceptual focused album, the cat replied, feels good was the single. So yes, it was on there for the radio. We did a video for it, which was the weirdest thing. Shot partly in London in an old theater and partly in sunny Los Angeles with a girl on a motorbike. You have to see it, he says. I'd actually come back and listen to this one though. Like, I like the clean part that Tony plays 
way better than the saturated bullshit on No Stranger. It's just a well-executed pop power ballad. Martin sings great on it too, kind of Coverdale-esque, not quite at the level of David, that pop perfection that he hit with Whitesnake in the late 80s, but he's getting there. And so then the closer on the album is Heaven in Black. And I like that track too, but as far as it being the closer, it doesn't really stack up with the likes of Under the Sun, The Writ, over and over, and even more recently, fucking Nightwing, right? It could be great mid-album fare for sure. Not, there's no problem with keeping it on the album for me somewhere, but if they left us with Sabbath Stones instead in that slot, that would just be incredible, I think. Let's peek at the lyrics here for Heaven in Black, because you know what? I do need to give this song some more attention. I'll admit I haven't listened to this one very much. I've also kind of been criticized by some listeners that I don't unpack the true historic meanings of some of these Martin lyrics, specifically songs that I brush off, you know? Like on Idol, I didn't talk about the fact that Glory Ride was about World War II pilots. I just said it's about wings and fantasy shit, whatever. <laughs> I mean, my bad. Sometimes I'm just going to take the piss and brush off songs that actually mean a lot to people. So let's do Heaven in Black proper here. Because I've read that specifically it's about the creation of St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow, in the Red Square there. You know, that crazy-ass one that looks like it's made out of candy. You know it. It's iconic Moscow. Not the Kremlin, but the other one. So, as the story goes, the Russian Tsar, Ivan the Terrible, had the cathedral built in Moscow, and then, after its completion, he had the architect's eyes cut out so that he couldn't make another building in its likeness, thus making it the unique crown of his empire. <laughs> Jesus, like, no shit he's Ivan the Terrible, right? So here are the cast lyrics, just keep that in mind. This is him kind of retelling the tale. Rising with the sun, the work has been done, but the people are starting to stare. Called from afar to the court of the Tsar, could it be something is wrong? You stand face to face, and your heart gathers pace for the answer to a question, a prize. If only you had known to be honest was wrong, for the work you've done, you'll pay with your eyes. <laughs> there you go. Don't fuck with the Tsar, man. Well, I guess they didn't really fuck with him, right? They did the job right. Just don't freelance for the fucker. <laughs> And that's the lesson here. Let's saddle up and get on the Viking caravan here. Some rape and pillage, no doubt. It is a funny story. I think those stories are kind of best in the caravan. So after the disaster in the States of last cycle, the lads, or I guess the management, decided that they'd kick off in Europe. No Sabbath American tour whatsoever for Tyr. The entire world tour was, in fact, only a three-month kind of focused on the only territories left that would hurry out to buy a Black Sabbath ticket. You had Britain, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Holland, France. So it's important they're hitting those Scandinavian ones with this themes of this record as well. But this caravan's going to be a little short one here. So let's go to the first gig, though, as that was a special set list, really. September of 1990, Wolverhampton, England. So just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the boys' proper hometown. The opener for the first gig was Circus of Power. I've never heard of them, but they stay on and tour with them the whole time. I need to check them out. But anyway, check out this epic set list that they, the boys came out here. There's also a bootleg of this one too out there floating around. I love it. This is the best show set list of all the Martin Harris Sabbath shows I've come across so far. They go from that gate to hell, that swell that usually leads into Headless Cross, but then instead the angelic chorus 
vocals of Anomandi hit. Spirito Sanctos Ano Anomandi. <laughs> like fucking ghost or something. Then it's into Neon Nights. Then some Headless Cross Love with the title track and When Death Calls. Then it's War Pigs, The Shining, followed by an absolutely badass bass solo from Neil Murray. He then sinks into Heart Like a Wheel. You get Seven Star Love there. Very cool. Then it's the new ones. You get Lawmaker, The Battle of Tear Plays, and The Sabbath Stones come up. You got Odin's Court mixed with the intro of Sign of the Southern Cross. Then it's into Feels Good to Me, like a whole chilled out kind of acoustic moment here with these three back to back. Really cool stuff. Listen to the bootleg. And then it's into the classics, the live staples. You get Iron Man, Children of the Grave, Black Sabbath, Die Young, Heaven and Hell. And oh my God, they played Paranoid, folks. <laughs> that is an incredible set list, though. Go check out the bootleg. It's called The First Tier. The tour continued through the UK. Unfortunately, the crowds, even over there, started kind of dwindling show to show. Despite this incredible lineup, the 16-date swing in the UK only lasted 10 dates before cancellations due to poor ticket sales there, too. So I know, as much as we're enjoying these albums in retrospect, it's important to remember that the masses at the time just had moved on. Sabbath would never draw like they did in the 70s or even in the 80s. It's just the facts. A highlight of those 10 dates, though, was another couple of shows at the Hammersmith, September 8th and September 9th. As always, this is the place to see Sabbath. Sabbath at the Hammersmith is like fucking Motorhead at the Hammersmith. Anybody at the Hammersmith is fucking awesome. I, I really hope to catch a show there sometime before I kick the bucket. On the first night, the fans were treated to some special guests on the encores, actually. So the first encore, the lads came out with a little heaven and hell. And joining them on stage was Iomi's best bud, Dr. Brian May of Queen. <laughs> he stays on and plays Paranoid as well. I'm surprised they didn't bust out fucking when death calls, right? That would have been a cool treat. But that's not all. So those guys leave, and then they come back for a second encore. Iomi hits the Devil's Triad, signifying the self-titled song, the self-titled album. And who should enter but the song's primary creator, Geezer fucking Butler. So you get May and Geese in, in the encore. Definitely stick around to the end with these ones, right? Now, these great guest spots are super important, too, because especially Geezer, this kind of plants the seeds for everything that we're heading into after the tour. By this point, Geezer was not in Ozzy's band anymore, and he'd kind of been keeping up with all kinds of Sabbath alumni. But we'll get to all that later. Let's wrap up the tier, because there ain't much more to say, actually. I mean, the European swing goes pretty well. The tier lineup plays about 30-some-odd gigs all over Europe from September right through to November. Circus of Power seems to just be opening with them the whole time. I need to check those cats out there. There's no major cancellations. Oh, except, hey, there's one here, and this is in Amsterdam. Apparently the roof of the venue collapsed, so <laughs> that's not their fault. Although that kind of shows that they're probably playing some pretty haggard venues if roofs are caving in and shit. So November 28, 1990 is their last gig. And Shawiran, Germany. So that puts shit in perspective. Shawiran, I'm probably not saying that right, but I don't know how well attended this gig was, but that town itself, the population is probably pretty much equal to the crowds that we're playing to in the mid-70s at Ontario Speedway and stuff. I'm just saying, it's not a burn, it's just a fact, right? 
However, the Germans fucking love Tony Martin, and Tear actually broke into their top 10 record sales there in Germany, so I can see why they played the smaller places. That is good, right? <laughs> fucking well played, Germany. You're keeping the lads alive. But here, let's park the caravan now, close this episode out for the night, because we're heading into the holidays now. By December, the lads disperse. No real plans to work on new material right away, but also there's no plans to blow up the lineup, so... In a holding pattern for now, back to their respective personal lives. It's funny though, for me, this album and this lineup with the addition of Murray in there, it actually kind of pushed Headless Cross down my rankings and leaped up into, you know, fucking Dio territory. Some of the later Aussie releases too is Essential Sabbath for me. Songs like Valhalla, fucking Sabbath Stones, Monday. Like these are climbing up my rankings too. This is just a great record. I'm going to keep spending it. I loved it. Might be peak Tony Martin power in my eyes and ears anyway. We'll see. There's still a couple more offerings to go here from Martin. So as always, leave me a review. Follow me on Twitter at SabbathBloodyPC or email me at SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. I love getting emails from you guys when you can kind of bust out of the 100 characters or so that you get on Twitter and you can actually tell me your thoughts on the albums. As mentioned, the behind the scenes on Tear were kind of fucking sparse, so I hope I did a good job of it here. If you saw them on this cycle, let me know any dirt I missed and wise me up to anything from this era. I'd love to learn more about Tear and the songs here. Is there like a deeper story behind Feels Good to Me? <laughs> all right then, that's it for me. The next episode's gonna be sweet though. I'm sure you all know what's coming back, right? Not to bury the lead here, but. Neon Sabbath Mark II reunion, motherfuckers. My favorite Dio lineup. It will be glorious. So keep a tight ass out there until then. Take care, friends. Bog blast all of you.